First, let's listen. I think everybody's born for like the same reason. You know, like just better the world, better the people you're around. But I think once you get older, everybody becomes a little bit different. You kind of have to find your own reason for being born and all that. You just kind of, you have to do whatever makes you happy, whatever you can do to make other people happy. I think that'd be a good reason for being born. If there was one thing that you could go back and change, what would it be? I would go back and change the passing of my grandfather because I wish he was still with me so I could show him what I've done so far and what I'm going to achieve in the future. Some of the challenges that I had was probably uh, get used to the language. I had to learn English um, from zero. Uh, and also, uh, I missed a lot of my family and friends at the beginning. My first year was really tough. I feel like there's not a lot of times where you can be, you can really think about like your day or like things that are going on like around you and like with running and you can sort of really think about like what's going on around you like hearing and looking and smelling just putting all your problems like like figuring out stuff which helps. The weather outside today like I don't like it's bad I feel like in my opinion it's bad to see kids on their phone walking to class when you could like be enjoying the weather like this you know. Mm -hmm. If there weren't phones I'm sure I wouldn't be able to talk to my grandma who lives five hours away you know but I also feel like um feel like with social media and stuff, I don't think our world is supposed to be, I don't know how to put it, like as connected as it is, you know, like where if I'm like scrolling and seeing how everyone else's day-to-day -day life goes, I feel like it affects how other people think too, how their life is and stuff, where there weren't phones, like you would go about your day worrying about you, you know? Yeah. One thing I can't live without, um, I'd say my little brothers, all my brothers, I have three brothers, and... Uh, just us three together wouldn't be us hanging out is just fun and I wouldn't I can't imagine my life without him to be honest so yeah definitely my brothers she was this vibrant person that just I mean her smile would light up a room when she walked in um, she cared more about other people than herself which I think that's where I kind of get my uh, heart in a sense from I mean, the best word I can use to describe her was my best friend, like, ever. I mean, <laughs> she and I would gossip for hours about boys I like. Um, but just, she was just such a great person in general. I mean, I know everyone can say that about their mom, but, I mean, when she passed, over, like, a thousand people came to her visitation, and even more came to her, like, funeral. And I mean, like, in a sense, I think that just kind of, that really kind of just explains how many people she touched. Because she was always doing things for other people, even when she was sick. So. Now, let's talk. Let's talk for a moment about talking. It's both ancient and underrated. Ancient because, hey, it's the dawn of culture. Stretching back to those huddled groups sitting by the fire, planning, plotting, reflecting, sharing experiences. Underrated because it can become cheapened with habit. Small talk in hallways, hollow hellos and passing. Each semester, students in the audio journalism elective at Baylor share a common objective. 
to take back the power of simple conversation. We talk to each other, we talk to strangers, we even talk to ourselves. We listen, we discover. That montage you just heard were snippets from the roughly 250 conversations that occurred this year. In addition to talking with one another, students branch out in a series of creative assignments. All roads lead to the final project of the year, called the Personal Project, where a student takes all the skills they've acquired through the many interviews and audio exercises and applies them in the telling of a story that matters to them. On this episode, we'll hear several of those final projects, as well as explore how students got there. I'm Mike Kelly, I'll be your host. Welcome to the Quad Pod. This is episode 24, Getting Personal, again. If you like what you hear on this episode, I recommend you go back to episode 15 from last May, if you haven't already heard that one, for another dose of quality student work. That one's called Getting Personal. While I'll be highlighting several final projects, which we call the personal project, I'm also going to do something a little different this time around and showcase some of our smaller assignments and explain how they help the students acquire the skills they need for the final project. In order to understand the journey students take over the course of the semester, it makes sense to clarify the final destination. So I'd like to start with a personal project that I think beautifully illustrates the power of a carefully constructed story. In my opinion, this audio story has it all, an artful reconstruction of the interview tape that clearly presents the arc of a story, masterful narration to guide us, and thoughtful sound design elements that bring an immediacy to the story that can be felt. This is Senior Conley Brock speaking with her father about a harrowing experience they all lived through back in April of 2020. You've already heard from Conley, hers was the final voice in that montage we opened with, speaking about the passing of her mother. And though her mother had already passed when the events of this story unfolded, for Conley, her presence could be felt on that fateful day. Here is her story. I was trying to shut the door, but there was a vacuum in the house, so it was sucking the door out of my hand. So I sat there and put my hand through the wall to get a grip to hold the back on the door and it seemed like you know 15 20 seconds and the door was being pried out and then all of a sudden all the windows imploded in the house my ears popped really loud like if you were driving up a mountain and then tornado was gone east brainerd one of the hardest hit areas here in chattanooga more than 150 homes and businesses were leveled homes and businesses were destroyed homes and businesses are destroyed by an ef3 tornado ef3 tornado 1500 yards wide traveled for nine miles that slammed into the east brainerd area of chattanooga then moved through uduwa in college dale this is my dad paul brock jr he experienced the 2020 easter tornado firsthand he knew the storm was coming, but it didn't register that it would be this bad. They said they were going to be some bad storms, but typically we have those anyway. He went to bed that night not thinking much about the storm. That's when he was awoken. I heard a crack in the ceiling, and I looked up, and the ceiling was coming down. It pulled the roof off. As it was coming down, I sat there and balled up, and that's when the uh, beams from the roof hit me and landed on me on top of the bed and knocked me through the box springs. It knocked the breath out of me, kicked off the footboard of the bed, and rolled out 
and could still hear the tornado above me. And I could see lightning, but a loud noise, everything was hit me in the face. Insulation that was being blown so hard from the vacuum in the tornado. I just remember, you know, jumping down the steps to rush before I got sucked out. I ran and got into our pantry, which was under the stairway. I mean, going through the tornado was scary because it's everything. it lived up to everything that you ever heard. That You know, the whole house is shaking. It's loud. Debris was hitting me in the face. So, you know, you're fighting for your life because a lot of bad things could happen. I never felt the suction, but it sucked all the furniture out, so it could easily have sucked me out. You know, I just, you know, really knew that the kids needed me. When the tornado ended, my dad came out from the pantry to find the whole house tossed like a salad. He went upstairs, walking barefoot on broken glass, as the rain continued to fall in the house. He knew that he needed to find his phone so that he could call my grandfather, who my brother and I were staying with. But finding his phone was far more difficult than he expected. And I had to use lightning to try to find my phone because there was no power. After he got off the phone with us, he knew that he had to get downstairs because he could smell gas. And that's when I found our dogs. They witnessed the full force of the tornado once the windows blew out in the sunroom that they were, you know, pinned into a cage with. You know, they were covered in insulation and they were just happy to get out whenever I let them out. He analyzed the rest of the damage that he could see, but rescuing the dogs wasn't his only heroic act. He knew that he needed to help his neighbors. I went to the neighbor's house to uh, look and see if I, uh, how they were, because we have a lot of elderly neighbors. After helping some of our elderly neighbors, he went to one of our close friend's house, which should have only taken him two minutes. But due to all the debris and trees strewn everywhere across the road, it took him 30. When he arrived at their house, he found out that the family there was completely fine, except for... The man that lives there had hurt his leg real bad from where a brick wall had fallen on him. So being the heroic figure my father is, he helped carry him to the road so that an ambulance could pick him up. After returning to the house, he set up a canopy for the rest of our neighbors. The city showed up to clear the road about 5 a.m., and I watched them clear our road. When daylight broke... That's when you could really see all the damage. And I was just looking at the destruction in the neighborhood. I mean, overwhelming because just the sounds because nobody had power and all you could hear was gas lines spewing and car alarms going off from where they had been, you know, things had fallen on those. The cleanup was probably the hardest part. It was overwhelming trying to figure out where to start at. You know, there were things there that you've forgotten about that was thrown everywhere. You were trying to make sure you preserved what you could and picking things to preserve and keep was the hard part because you know you're overwhelmed with this massive cleanup and then you're trying to pick things that you want you know the kids to have the rest of their life but there was a bright side in the middle of a pandemic people came together you know humankind showed up and it was beautiful we had so many friends from volleyball to just family and stuff show up you know put their life to the side to help us but there's one thing that really stood out as incredible my mom's fragile china cabinet was left completely untouched even though it was in the heart of where all the damage was and on the last day before the house was bulldozed my family got to go through the house and destroy it it was like saying goodbye, but, you know, it's sad in its own right that you get to do that for something that you lived in and loved so much. My dad was lucky. 
The house, not so much. The whole house was a loss. All the trees were leveled and you could see from our house to East Springer Road almost. Our kitchen was imploded into, the chairs went into the cabinet area, our table was smashed, all uh, our furniture in the living room was sucked out to the uh, roadside. It torn the whole roof off, it blown out the living room wall, it moved our house off the foundation, it had removed 10 trees in our yard. All the furniture out of the living room, it sucked down the road. We found pictures of my daughter about five miles away. It totaled my truck and my daughter's car, it, but just a you know, bunch of stuff got blown everywhere. But experiences like this one are teaching moments in life. It may be full of hurt or sadness, but it prepares you and shapes you. And the one thing my dad learned from this experience is... You see the good side of everything and also experience some of the things that you learn from. If we can borrow a metaphor from the culinary world, what are the ingredients that Conley used in crafting her story? Well, for starters, she had to be adept to both recording and editing her father's story. And then with all the details spread before her, she had to know where to start. In the elective, we start with a simple exercise that helps introduce some of these key ingredients. It's called a short list, and it's just what it sounds like. A simple list that the student reads into their recording device but there's a twist. Here's a short list from Senior Asher Skiles. A Diet Coke can, a sponge, a pair of Oakley glasses, a stack of mail, couch cushions, dirt, a red ballpoint pen, two Roku remotes, rocks, stuffed animals, a dog bed, hardwood floor, drywall, a shaving razor, a lacrosse ball, monkey grass, a log, a pillow, five pairs of reading glasses, a stick of deodorant, a M80 firecracker, a candlestick, a still warm piece of charcoal, a dead rabbit. Things my dog has eaten. The short list is fueled by mystery, as the burning question, how all the items relate to one another, is kept at bay until the end, when the title is revealed. Students are encouraged to design a list that nurtures this sense of mystery, a place where odd things congregate. This is the same fuel that we try to bring to our projects when we sequence the details. The opening few seconds of a piece can determine whether your listener is along for the ride or not, and increasingly narratives rely on this aspect of momentary disorientation to hook the listener. Here's another from Senior Emery Carrico. Take control of your anxiety, your trusted electrician, the sign you shouldn't drive high, get 10% cash offer on your home. Sutherland Car Wash Wreck into a check Number one real estate firm locally Same day service guaranteed Transmission world Your storage world It's pizza time Real in savings from wherever Brown squirrel furniture New cheesecake pancakes Waterfront living you picked the right one. Same day service, y'all. 
Parts Sales Services, RV's Truck Wash, Cotton Candy Wine, Free Wi-Fi, Ruby Tuesday, Sweetwater Western, Choose Life in Jesus, Dinner Bell Restaurant. These are things I saw on billboards. In addition to serving as a simple introduction for the students into using the tools of the trade, that is, recording devices and audio editing software, the shortlist also allows students in a way to introduce themselves to me and each other. There's a signature of sorts that emerges from each student's list. What corner of their lives did they go searching in for the items on their list? If senior Justin Todd has a signature, it could be said to be his interest in just about everything under the sun. Justin pulled from news headlines for his short list and turned outside the comfortable environments of family in the Baylor campus for his personal project, which takes courage. I'd like to highlight Justin's project next as it showcases some storytelling techniques that we work on building in another creative audio assignment that I'll talk about just after we hear his story. Here is Justin's personal project. Now, what do you think that music's all about? It's the way it makes you feel when you hear it. If it tells us something, not a story or a picture, but a feeling, if it makes us change inside and have all those different good feelings that music can make you have, then you're understanding it. But every once in a while, we have feelings that are so deep and so special that we have no words for them. And that's where music is so marked because music names them for us, only in notes, instead of in words. Music has always been something that's very special to me. It has had the ability to change me, to motivate me, to inspire me. And just through music itself, I feel that I have changed as a person. But what is it about music that is so valuable for people to listen to? In order to figure out why music is so impactful, I went to the professor of music therapy at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, Catherine Elvard Goforth. I've worked predominantly in the clinical setting with pediatric patients. I use music as a modality to reach non-musical outcomes. So definition of music therapy, we're an allied health profession that uses music to facilitate an interaction to achieve non-musical outcomes. We're evidence-based and it's really a relationship between a client therapist and the music. So I'm not looking at teaching anyone to sing or play an instrument or write music or even just listen to music and then do something with it. It is more related to the modality or the avenue of the music to reach non-musical outcomes that targets the mind, body, and spirit of an individual. In order to answer my question on why music is so impactful, I asked Professor Gopher to explain what exactly about music is so meaningful. Music activates multiple areas of the brain. So music isn't housed in one part of the brain like motor movement and speech and like executive functioning is. Music has a power over your brain unlike anything else. By activating many different parts of your brain, music is able to draw out very emotional responses. 
The frequencies of music send neurons firing in your brain, causing emotional responses all throughout. That's why music is so impactful on us. Music's potential to impact people's lives can be seen in many different ways, as Professor Goforth elaborates. One of the things I do currently as my ongoing clinical work is I'm the director of Trembling Troubadours. And Trembling Troubadours is a choir for individuals living with Parkinson's disease and their caregivers. We operate very much like a choir, but our goals are very different than that of a choir like a Baylor. The goal of Trembling Troubadours is to use their voice because Parkinson's disease impacts their voice. Music therapy can enhance breast support, vocal volume, and articulation. But therapeutic singing is just what it sounds like. It's just singing. It's taking the posture, the breathing, the vocal volume, the articulation, and putting it all together. In addition to the mental benefits that music can provide, it also has a series of physical effects that it can have on your body. We have a great evidence-based intervention called Rhythmic Auditory Stimulation, or RAS. And it is a specific intervention that is used to help restore the gait or the ability of an individual to walk. And so through the use of music serving as an external auditory stimulus, we have the ability to match the music or the elements of the music to the individual to help with increasing their gait and restoring it. To further analyze the physical benefits of listening to music, I asked Professor Goforth to explain how music might help a weightlifter. Music could serve as a distraction from the pain that they might be experiencing in that moment. It also could help increase like the adrenaline and the excitement and the motivation. Also, the concepts or the principle of entrainment could come into play to where, let's say, maybe it's not the heaviest that they can lift, but they want to do more reps. And so moving to the beat of the music certainly is in training the body to help facilitate that function. Though some of these out there applications of music may not seem applicable to you as a listener, even routine listening to music in the car has various benefits. So we all probably know about the therapeutic benefit of music. That is what we are getting when we are in our car and we may have had a hard day and we're kind of decompressing on our way home. We don't necessarily think of it as in clinical terms, but there is an impact the music is having on your mood, which is correlating to how it's impacting your brain. There are certainly therapeutic benefits that we see from our engagement with music. I have found music to be an overwhelmingly positive force on my life. I've always found that it lifts my spirits and helps me to grow as a person. So I encourage you, listen to the songs that you love, seek out more that you could in the future, and learn to play that instrument that you've been putting off. This is Justin Todd, class of 2023, signing off. Thank you for listening. I'd like to comment on two aspects of Justin's project. First, though Professor Goforth's voice is the predominant element of Justin's story, it's also very much his own story too. Justin's interest into the therapeutic benefits of music is what brought him out into the world in search of a subject. 
This kind of personal deep dive into a topic is often rich territory for the personal project, and I encourage students to explore their own lives and interests when brainstorming project ideas. The second element of Justin's story that stands out is how he created a rich soundscape for his story by integrating archival footage and field recordings. Those are Baylor students playing the piano near the beginning of the story. Both of these ingredients are part of the From the Future assignment that follows the short list. Students are instructed to craft a dispatch from some point in the future to either the present day or someday in the past. Students are encouraged to look at their own life histories and future trajectories for story possibilities. And then we work on using sound design elements to enrich those stories and bring them to life. As in Justin's project, juggling multiple audio tracks and balancing them all together takes practice. So this assignment provides exposure to that. Here is Senior Bowen Allen's message from the future. Listen to how Bowen subtly weaves in sound design elements into his story. Bowen, I want to prevent you from the bad decision that you're about to make in the spring of eighth grade. I know you're hot and out of breath after that workout on the track, but you just need to go home. Don't have your dad wait on you any longer. I know you'll be looking at that flood that covers a sophomore lot every year. Don't do it. Don't tell your teammates to tag along. You should have known it was a bad idea when Jude Smith jumped in the day before and got some type of virus. He also didn't show up to school the next day. That water is dirty, toxic, and will get you in a lot of trouble. Don't run to the crew dock. Don't take your green Garmin watch off that you think is not waterproof. Mr. Steele will be around to catch you. Security will start calling your name when you're waist deep in the middle of the sophomore lot. Your dad will be upset because he waited on you at Duke for 30 minutes. Your mom will think you'll have a serious disease from that sewer water. You'll be in two weeks of in-school suspension with Miss Birdsaw every afternoon, writing essays about the dangers of sewer water. You will be behind and training for two weeks in track, which will cost your whole season. So ask yourself, is it going to be worth it? Here is another From the Future dispatch, this time from Senior Morgan Sharp. Hey Morgan. It's Morgan, coming to you from the future to tell you I know you feel a lot of anxiety about your future. You're worried about your grades, whether you will get to start in softball, and the friends you will make. As a consequence, you're missing out on life's funnest moments that you could be having if you weren't so worried. I'm not going to tell you everything about your future, but I'll give you a little snapshot. You graduated. You walked across the stage you always dreamed of. You're playing college softball now, starting as a freshman and batting 400 with 20 home runs. Everything is going your way, but a part of you wishes you were still in high school, only this time appreciating every moment and the people surrounding you. After your practice, stop and thank your coaches because they are going to pave the way for you. On weekends, get out of your room and go spend time with your family and sister because they aren't going to be there forever. On Friday nights, go enjoy every football game and cheer on the Red Raiders. At lunch, stop checking Instagram and get off your phone and talk to your friends. Slow down and remind yourself you only get these moments once. Take it easy on yourself and enjoy the ride. I'll see you soon. At this point in the semester, as students are gaining proficiency with the technical side of the process, we shift our focus to interview skills. Students conduct eight interviews with peers in their class over the course of the semester. Students can't use a question more than twice, so they have to practice generating good questions 
as well as getting as much out of a question as possible by asking follow-ups and thinking on the fly. We call this squeezing the lemon. By the end of the semester, students are comfortable with interview dynamics and skilled at getting good audio levels and miking both their subjects and themselves. These are key ingredients they need for the personal project, especially when you've asked someone to sit down and tell a part of their history that has some emotional weight to it. We don't want that encounter derailed by technical problems, and our job is to make the subject comfortable, which starts with our own competency. I selected our next personal project for you to hear because I think it's a great example of just a very solid interview. This is Caleb Hampton's interview with his grandfather, Wilbur Washington, about serving in Vietnam. I'll have more to say about it after we listen. Here is Caleb's interview. Hi, my name is Caleb Hampton, class of 2023, and I decided to interview my own grandfather, Wilbur Washington, who experienced the Vietnam War. I chose this topic really to share the many stories my grandfather experienced that many may have not heard from a faithfully rooted African-American man. Wilbert, can you explain to me the process of getting drafted in the Vietnam War? The process of getting drafted was really any young man that didn't have, I guess, a purpose in life. I had went to a trade school and after high school, and I graduated in refrigeration. I came to Chattanooga, Tennessee to start a life, and um, no one in the Chattanooga area would hire me because I was not drafted or didn't have any type of military time. So I got a lot of jobs paying just a dollar twenty an hour, and that wasn't enough to take care of a family. I was married when I came to Chattanooga to live. Then I got a draft notice. My family called me in from my Beaufort, South Carolina, and let me know that uh, military had drafted me and uh, gave me the date that I needed to go to uh, Columbia, South Carolina. So I um, packed up my bags and I went to uh, Columbia, where I, where I met with thousands of young men. And when I got drafted, you couldn't choose what branch of military going to enter. At least that's what they told me. I couldn't choose. I was drafted by the Army. Explain to me your initial thoughts and how you felt you were going to explain to your family about this. I felt hurt. I mean, you know, not ever being drafted before. And, and really, I didn't know anybody that had been drafted to uh, kind of lean on and, and ask them what to expect. But once I got in and I followed the process, I was a decent athlete. So I wasn't one that just sat on the couch. And our basic training was a whole lot of running, jumping, climbing, actually a lot of physical work. And I thought I fit in pretty good. I tried to do everything that was asked of me. And there were many um, of my buddies that would play sick and, and they would put them on hard duties. I didn't want to put up with any of that. So I was one of the obedient ones. I finished basic training in Columbia, and they sent me to Fort Dix, New Jersey, for um, AIT training. And when they sent me there, I, I was given a supply clerk um, MOS, which was a job. I felt good about it, called my family and told them what I was doing. I asked around, and they said by, by me having that type of MOS, I looked like I was safe and I wouldn't have to go to the war. Well, after... Um, after I got through with the uh, training on supply clerk, my next orders were Vietnam. 
I I got like I think it was 15 days to come home and say goodbye to my wife, my mother and father, and my siblings. Many soldiers have a breaking point where they lose hope or lose their faith, but they also have a brother right next to them that is feeling the same way. I, when I left the states, going over there, I was kind of really down in spirit, but. Man, when they put you on a plane and there's 300 others just like you, um, you kind of put down the um, the sad feeling and try to make friends and try to adjust to the situation that you might be in. You know, as being an African-American, did you ever go through any discrimination throughout the war? Yes, yes, you did. But, you know, it's like anything else. Growing up to the point of being drafted, you got to try and make it work. I tried to uh, ignore the discrimination part. I didn't kiss nobody but, but I didn't didn't yield either. I let them know that um, I did not like how they were treating me. My promotion and everything was um, delayed, and I know it was delayed because of my um, Afro-American descent. Did you make any friends? And if you did, did you lose any of those friends? Yeah, I made a lot of friends. Uh, when I was um, stationed at Long Bend, at 534's Transportation, that was a trucking company. We would take flatbeds and haul to to different military bases supplies, you know, food, ammunition. So I was engaged with a lot of people, and, and um, I liked a lot of them, and I think a lot of them liked me. It wasn't a day that they could catch me all too much down in spirit, except when you might lose a, a friend that you... Uh, that you came attached to while you was over there. So talk to me about the good memories about the war. I know when people talk about war, they think about all the bad things that went on, but I know there's, I'm sure there's some good things that went on. Talk to me about that. I had a sergeant, a master sergeant that was from New Orleans, and he could cook all the New Orleans dishes, crabs, shrimp. And it was another young man, Leonard Otega. He was from New Orleans. I was from um, Beaufort, South Carolina. And we would just talk about all the uh, seafood dishes that we ate. And this sergeant, he would be standing in the motor pool. And when Leonard and I would come in with our vehicles, he would flag us down and tell us to go to his his office. And we'd, we would go to his office and he would have a Louisiana dish. And we wouldn't go to the cafeteria. We would just sit in his office and enjoy it ourselves. Those were some good, memorable moments. I um, had some friends from uh, California, never been with young men from California. Their way of thinking is a whole lot different than our way. I, <laughs> I enjoyed being around them as well. Explain to me the scariest encounter that you've had in the war. Well, one time we, uh, we were on a mission to carry some uh, supplies, I want to say to play coup, and um, we were running in a convoy. And when you drive in a convoy, you have convoy speeds which is like 35 miles an hour. That's everybody driving 35 miles an hour. We were under the understanding that we could get attacked. So we must have drove about maybe two hours, and then all of a sudden our lead truck got hit, which stopped everybody from going forward. Then the back truck got hit, which stopped you from going back because the roads were, were narrow, and we had to get out of our trucks and do some um, combat fighting. Now, we eventually got Airborne Group to come and help save us, but that was one of the scariest uh, situations 
that I ever been in while I was over there. Okay, lastly, were you ever affected by the war health-wise? Well, right now, I'm suffering with multiple myeloma, and um, I'm told that that came from Agent Orange. And what was bad about that is that our military would um, lay that Agent Orange in areas and never tell you that you was um, entering that area. Now, I mean, I know there's others that probably suffered with the same sickness I have. So after this myeloma got in me and I had medical um, people to examine me and I've tried programs where it went in remission, but it came back. And now I'm taking um, medication every week to slow it down. They tell me I never would get rid of it. I just would have to slow it down. Uh, but I always fought my country for not letting us know where they sprayed that Agent Orange when we all was over there. Lastly, um, were you overall satisfied with the outcome of the war? After I, um, after I got grown and matured, I, I kind of understand that, um, that somebody have to uh, go and defend our country. It wasn't a, a wish of mine. My father did 24 years in the Navy. And my father had four boys. He told all of us that we would contribute to Uncle Sam's army. And so that was sort of drilled in me. I always knew I would end up going, but I didn't want to volunteer and go. After serving, I'm glad I have it behind me. I can share with my children and my grands, uh, acquaintances I run, run into in life, that there is a need to be serving our government. Caleb's piece is a great example of a student using what I'll call the magic of the microphone to have a meaningful conversation that maybe, who knows, wouldn't have occurred otherwise. Or if it had, maybe wouldn't have been preserved. The microphone not only gave Caleb access to the conversation, but it also seals and protects the story for future generations of Hamptons, which is a real gift. Here's another excellent family story from senior Caroline Wyke who decided to interview her father about escaping his tough childhood and becoming a leader in his family and community. Let's have a listen. What I would describe it as is a jungle. It's kind of like where only the strong survive. I'm Caroline Wyke, and this is my father, Shannon Wyke. I sat down with him to get a better understanding of the place he was raised, what his family life was like, and how his leadership allowed him an opportunity out. I'm from a town outside of Memphis. It's uh, Selma, Tennessee, where only the strong survive. It's, it's a feeling in the air. It's very different than East Tennessee. It's very different than most places in the United States, to be honest with you. It's a survival of the fittest, as I said, which makes <clears throat> everyone wants to be a leader. It, you'll never meet a guy from my area who's a follower. Everyone wants to be a leader, which leads to a lot of conflict. The economics there, nothing. The average salary is like $23,000. Now, I'm talking about this to people who... Uh, work real jobs and do real things. So obviously, in order to make it, 
uh, the only other opportunities are the streets. So violence, uh, everything that comes along with it, fast money, survival at, at all costs, um, makes where I grew up just a just a very tough environment to grow up in. Now my dad explains what being in a large family was like and the dynamics inside of the household. Oh, I was the 11th of 12 kids, unbelievably. 11 boys and one girl. My parents just continued to have children. I, it's something that puzzles me to this day. Like puzzled at the fact that they would continue to have it, but thank God that they did, obviously. As I'm number 11, I wouldn't be in the mix. But what that does to a dynamic is that splits your life into two families. So number kid, one through six, by the time the next set of generation is growing up, that group's already moved out of the house and having families. And so I had brothers in the military with children. I tell people, I was like, I'm the only person I know who was an uncle on his second day on being on this earth himself. So, like I said, it's like having a group of people who are your brothers, but yet they're so much older and advanced that you get to filter through their lives and learn things, but it's not like the dynamic of having the group that you're with. So the second group, which is the group I grew up with, like we basically had free reign. Now, the pressure that comes along with that <clears throat> is immense. Like by that time, parents just had no resources, no anything. So you get to actually live and find out at a very early age who is who, who's gonna be, like I said, that leader that takes over the group. And fortunately, or unfortunately for me, I was always that guy that ended up being the leader. My dad is now going to tell the story that he believes led him to be a leader and made him realize he had to do whatever he could to make it out of Selmer. The story my father told me when I was 10 years old, now he told me this story, not knowing that he would be dead six years later and that I would really need to lean on this. Uh, there was a lady in Africa, and she was uh, due to have a baby the next day. And that night, uh, another tribe raided her village, and they killed everyone there with machetes. And she survived by escaping and climbing a tree in which she had to have the baby in the tree and not make a sound as the soldiers were marching around looking for her. And then she had to keep that baby quiet and hike 62 kilometers to the next village to survive with that baby, in which she did. And then that baby made it to the United States to go on and live a long, productive life. I had no idea why he was telling me that story. Like, man, and one day after he his death, it hit me as clear as day. And then from that moment on, every situation that slapped me in the face, I simply said, I gotta do what I gotta do. 
My dad had the opportunity to go to college on a full ride to play basketball. In college, he met my mother, and they moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee. This is where my dad created his training business and boomed. He is the prime example of how it doesn't matter where you came from or what you go through, that if you are determined to take control of your life, you can do whatever you put your mind to. Once I got to college and got around people who were looking driven, looking to be successful, had dreams and aspirations, I could see beyond the small little pit that I had been in my whole life. So just keep battling and your circumstances, once they are in the right position where your mind can focus, anything is possible. Here is another great story about an individual beating the odds and through strength of spirit, writing his own future. This time we have junior Addy Yates with senior Mohammed Wumpini. I interviewed Mohammed Wumpini, who won the John Harrison Award here at Baylor. The annual award recognizes a student with relentless positivity, passion, and selflessness while giving to others, the school, and the community with a true greatness of spirit. Mo is a senior boarder from Ghana and was influenced to attend Baylor school through soccer. Mo explains that his life before Baylor was hard. Before I came to Baylor, life wasn't easy because I have four siblings and I lost my dad when I was four. So my mom had to give me to um, a family friend, which my dad promised to do before he passed. So. I went there at the age of four to five to stay there for five years before I came back to my mom. But when I came back, this wasn't easy. And playing soccer um, is one of is 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 what I love to do, and it keeps on giving me opportunities. He explains that without soccer, he wouldn't have been able to leave his country. How did you find out about Baylor? Um, so when I went back to my mom, a couple of months, I start, I joined a club team playing whilst one man saw me and he said he wanted me to come to Accra, a different part of Ghana so that I can play soccer so they can take care of my education. And because things was hard for my mom, she said, okay, I went there. In Ghana National, under and the, and the 17 teams, coach saw me and he invited me to the national team. I went to the national team for one week trials and I make it to the team. And my my coach here, Coach Kwame, saw me, saw my videos. That's how it came and I I found myself here at Baylor. Like, have you ever dreamed of moving away from home? Um, actually, I got a, I got a lot of um couple of opportunities to travel out to play soccer, but um, it didn't work out because my last one was Italy, and the agent got it covered and he passed away. That's why I couldn't go. But apart from that, um, I was not expecting anything anymore. I was just there. Mo appreciates that he found a family to lean on here while he adapted to the different culture. What challenges did you face coming to Baylor, and how did you overcome them? 
Um, it's a like a lot of challenges, and if I may say, culture diversity, like how you adopt from one culture to another. When I came here for the first time, how they speak, how people dress and stuff was different, but I miss my family, my mom and stuff. But I keep on thinking like, why why do I choose soccer? Or and something you are doing to achieve or to change your your family story. You have to go through a lot before you can make it. So I always talk to myself, I'll, I'll find challenges and how I'll handle it or I'll fail and how I'll come back will make you a um, better person. So I miss them, but I found like family at Bela. So yeah. Mo explains that the moment he won the award was amazing and surprising. How did you feel whenever you realized that you won the award? Uh, I was so surprised, but you know, God knows best. So I was, I was excited and happy. And I think whatever you do, like it's been noticed by people. So I think I was happy. Mo received a prize and chose to use the money in a special way. Um, so you got a prize for the award. And you had to choose like what to do with the money, mm-hmm. and what did you do? Um, so, as I said earlier, the love I have for soccer and the little bit of research about John Harrison himself was a soccer lover. So I decided to um, do a soccer clinic, um, which I get to interact with um, soccer um, ministry in Chattanooga. So they came over with um, fifty-five Ks. We had a um, a game section. We practiced with the team. My 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 team at Bela helped me um organize. So we we play, we interact with the case, and after that we got John Harrison T-shirt for each um cake, and we come back to a dining hall to have um breakfast, which was very good. Mo is thankful for new opportunities here at Baylor because it allowed him to share his love. Did you expect your good spirits to be noticed by others here at Baylor? Um, I can say yes and I can say no because um, whatever is in you or whatever you have cannot hide. Even um, even if you don't want to say it. But I think being here at Baylor give me more opportunities to share or to experience good things and it show me how to serve how to love people. You can see someone like going through a lot. You don't know. You can say one way to change the person's life for the day. So me as a person, like someone can just say something and I'll think um, that was good and that thing can change my, my day. So I just think of trying to talk to people, being yourself. What do you think your future looks like? Um... You know, no one can predict the future, but um, I would say it's good. We'll see. But as we head towards college to play soccer at Hampton, Sydney, and continue um, education, we just put in the work and see what God will do. Yeah.
I've got one more personal project for you, but to set it up, I want to explain our final audio exercise for the semester, which consists of either a Vox Pop or a Sonic ID. The students get to choose. The Vox Pop should be familiar to you if you're a regular listener to this podcast. We use them as little glue pieces in an episode. It's called an interstitial in trade talk. There's an immediacy and liveliness to them as students capture as many voices as they can out on the quad or during a lunch period. They might get anywhere between 60 and 80. And on the back end, students learn how to organize the responses into digestible segments, thematic units, and then patch together those segments with narration. The same skills they will have to use when editing their final projects. Here is Senior Bella White's Fox Pop. You're laying in bed one night when all of a sudden you smell smoke. Your house is on fire. What's the one thing you grab? I decided to ask members of the Baylor community on what's the first thing they'll grab. Many thoughts went immediately towards their furry friends. My dog. Why? Because he's my best friend. My cat and my guitar. My dog. Probably my cat or my husband. That's a good one. I don't know which one. My dog. Oh, my dog's dead. Probably would get Fitzgerald, my cat. My dog. Why? I love my dog. My cat. Yeah, yeah probably my dog. My dog? My cat. Two dogs. Yeah. My cat. My dog. Uh, my dog. Others couldn't leave without their electronics. My phone. It's gotta be my phone. All my electronics, all my electronics. My phone. Why? because I use it every day. My phone. <laughs> Probably my Nintendo Switch. And what were the other things people had to grab? My stuffed animals. <laughs> my Captain America pillow. Um, my stuffed animals. My shoes. Probably like some shoes. Like shoes. how many pairs? Like as many as I can hold. My favorite <laughs> shoes. Run out. Not, not like Rory, your oh, own sister? I didn't know you could take people. Yeah, probably Rory. <laughs> I would not grab anything for Bella White. That's not an answer. <laughs> None of my recipes for Bella White. Yeah. It's a Quran. That's the book of um, Muslims. I don't know, soccer ball. Uh, probably my basketball. <laughs> I'm a hoopa for real, for real. My money clip. Not Miss Gina? Oh, Gina, I'd put her out first. Social security card. Probably my mom's wallet. My piggy bank. <laughs> How much is in it? Uh, about $2. Hopefully no one has to be in this situation, but it doesn't hurt to think about it now, when you still have the time. From the audio journalism elective, Bella White. Finally, the Sonic ID is an assignment that provides something like a little picture postcard. In audio form, of course of an important memory or event in a person's life. It could be anything, but as with the Vox Pop, it encourages student engagement with members of the community. Tell me a story, we say. We're going to be working these in more often in future episodes. It's a great way to add even more voices to the program and to provide some wow, I didn't know that insights into members of our community. Here is Justin Todd once more with research librarian Lee Howick. My wife and I decided not to have like a traditional wedding, I guess. Both of us really wanted to travel to Indonesia and in particular Bali. So we kind of decided to knock out two birds with one stone and just go get married in Bali. So I think we both are freaked out about the idea of having so many people there specifically for us. 
then also just seems like there's so much stress and expense. We were just like, you know, let's keep it simple. That was just kind of how it fit in with our personalities. It was like right in front of a waterfall and it was just in this lush jungle and you just kind of walk down into this valley in this gorge. There was mist and like all these like tropical plants around and it was just a picturesque environment. Lee Howick, research librarian at Baylor School on why he decided to get married in a jungle. This impulse to discover things we didn't know about a person is another great impetus for the personal project. And it's one that drove Junior Dawson Bowers to sit down with Austin Clark for her project. Hearing that Coach Clark had a passion for Broadway musicals really intrigued Dawson. As she was gearing up for a trip to New York, she thought she'd peel back the onion and see what she could discover about this man who, for many students, is often the face of discipline on campus. Not surprisingly, she discovered there's much more to Coach Clark than dress code infractions. Here's our final personal project. Have a listen. I'm Dawson Bowers with Baylor's audio journalism class, and I chose to interview Coach Clark because I heard through the grapevine that Coach Clark was a big fan of musical theater. I was intrigued by this because most of us know him as the face of discipline on campus, but clearly there's more to him, so I decided to sit down with him and learn more. And here's our conversation. I'm Dawson Bowers, class of 2024, and today I'm interviewing... Coach Clark. I've been at Baylor for 41 years. I was a head basketball coach for 36 of those years. I was athletic director here while I was the head basketball coach for 16 years, and now I'm assistant dean of students up on the hill, and I've been doing that now 16 years. And all some of them together and some of them separately, but a total of 41 years. Baylor's been part of me, raised two children here who are Baylor graduates, and my wife worked in the admissions office for 16 years. So we're pretty much Baylor all the way. Most students know you kind of as like the face of discipline at school but some might be surprised to learn that you're a big fan of musical theater. Can you tell us how your love of musical theater began? Well, I love to dance, and I kind of grew up dancing with my mother when I was probably six years old, listening to old Nat King Cole records, and she loved musicals and plays, and that's where I kind of got that from. So when I got to Baylor... After I'd been here for 25 years, I received kind of, they give you a gift of $5,000 that you can use any way you want to, but you can't buy a car with it or you can't, you know, improve on your house. You have to go spend it with something you want to do. So my wife and I thought about that, and we thought it'd be a great opportunity to go to New York with our children and see a play. So we did that, and we went up there, and we saw the first play I saw was Wicked. And my children loved that. That's kind of a prequel to The Wizard of Oz. It's a different thing, but it's really good. And the music was fantastic. And I came back and bought the tape of Wicked. I like the one song in there a lot. It's called Popular. So if you've ever heard the musical or heard that song, that's a fun song. So that's one of the things I've done. I've also went back again and went to see The Lion King, which I loved very much as well. And then went back the third time, and I watched uh, Jersey Boys, which is a musical about the life Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. And I loved him from an early age because the first time I went on a car date 
to Knoxville, Tennessee. I grew up in Kingston, Tennessee, about 40 miles from Knoxville. And I went to the Civic Auditorium on my first car date with my girlfriend. And we saw Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. And I loved it very much. When I saw it in New York, I actually got up in the aisles and danced just like everybody else was to the music. So I guess that's something people would never think Coach Clark would be doing. I'm going to New York next week. And what out of like all those shows do you think you would recommend the most? Well, if you like Four Seasons and the music, I would go with uh, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, Jersey Boys. If you like <laughs> The Wizard of Oz, then I would go to Wicked because it brings another angle to The Wizard of Oz. I didn't like The Lion King as much as the other two. Have you like ever tried out theater acting? before that or was it just your dancing like no I just I'm pretty much just a dancer I didn't want to do theater or anything like that I just I I like all kinds of execution when you when I'm coaching I love to see the great execution in football or baseball or basketball or whatever sport lacrosse anything you know tennis great execution in everything so I really enjoy seeing that and when you watch other people in plays and, you know, actors and actresses, they're performing with great execution and skill. So that's kind of just a thing that fascinates me is seeing people do something really well. Did you go or do you go to, like, any of the Baylor plays? Oh, yes. I go every spring. Do you like them a lot? Yes, I do. <laughs> I think it's really incredible what they do. It's way back when Shaq Van Dusen was doing it. You know, and now and what Beth Gumnick does and the stage that everything's set up, it's amazing at this level. What do you think, like, about the experience has affected you the most? Uh, just the beauty of it and people's talent, music. And I mean, I love music and I love the songs and the words of the songs of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, they played in my heart. I mean, that was my day of when I was in high school dating and stuff and you know, romantic. And then the plays are just top-notch. Is there any plays that you are thinking about seeing in the future? Well, see, I'm really kind of old school. I would go back and see the same ones again. <laughs> I like them that much, you know. And, of course, we are going to go back to New York when I retire and uh, and see some more plays, and it will have music in it for sure. I've been to New York a lot, and I love it. And I was wondering what some of your other favorite things about New York are besides plays. Well, that's very true. Obviously, I'm a coach in basketball, so I wanted to go to Madison Square Garden where the New York Knicks played, and I had that opportunity to go through there. At Tennessee, when I played basketball, I was red-shirted, and we played in the ECAC Holiday Festival there. So I've always loved New York. And my favorite NBA pro team was the New York Knicks of the 70s and 72 Air, Walt Frazier, Willis Reed, people like that. I loved how they played basketball, a true team game. Bill Bradley, who played at Princeton, played for him. A lot of great players. Phil Jackson, who legendary coach of the Chicago Bulls and Lakers, he was a sub for that team. So they had a great line, great movie. I watched it the other night, as a matter of fact. It's you know, Madison Square Garden, but the title of the movie was Garden When It Was Eden, and that meant when it was special. And that's always been one of my favorite teams. So I was lucky to go to the Garden. Then I was also lucky to take my son to Yankee Stadium 
that's what it's about. And so for me to be able to go to Madison Square Garden and Yankee Stadium, pretty special. They're just great things, the Statue of Liberty. I mean, it's kind of funny. I came from a small town in Kingston, Tennessee at 5,000. But they had one of the funniest billboards on the interstate I would always see on my way back to Knoxville to Tennessee. It says, if you can't find it in Kingston, go to New York. And I thought that was what I would do. I would go to New York. The city's so nice, they've named it twice. What is something else that students might be surprised to learn about you? Maybe they would be interested to know that I truly care about each one of them. It's not, I don't have any enjoyment at all in giving out penalties. I'd much rather them doing it for the right reasons. So where they're running from me on campus or something trying to get, that's really, they don't understand what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help them learn to be held accountable, follow rules, because that's what life's about, being able to do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. So if they think I've lived to give them in detention, they're sadly mistaken. Thank you for coming in and talking. I appreciate you letting me be able to talk about it, and I hope it was interesting and fun for people. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to be here at Baylor, and I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to talk to it. Of course, it was very interesting. I'll echo Coach Clark as well and say that I hope you found this assortment of stories and voices as interesting as I did. If you want to hear more, there are several additional interviews and stories that are going up on our SoundCloud page this week, some really exciting material, so I hope you'll check that out. That's soundcloud.com forward slash Baylor School. You're bound to discover some things you didn't know about some familiar faces there, which brings us back full circle to where we started. Communication is central to this human experience. Let's get out and talk to one another. I want to pause for a moment to thank the students on the Quad Pod staff who have been creating content for you for the past two years. Seniors Abigail Bailey, Nathan Andriotti, Spencer Chenery, Owen McDaniel, Hannah Winchester, and Justin Todd. You've left some mighty big shoes to fill, and I'm incredibly proud of you and grateful for your contributions. You will do big things, no doubt. I'd also like to thank the Baylor community for supporting this type of student work. Not every school has an audio journalism elective, and it's a dream to be able to share this experience with students, so thank you. Also, final thank you to our listeners. We certainly appreciate your support, and we'll see you again in the fall with a whole new staff of student voices and stories. Have a great summer, and go Big Red.